do you really want to be a cook? Do you really want to be a chef? And what does that really mean? I mean, if they're doing it only because it's going to give them some kind of visa, then that's bad enough. It is a tough industry. It's a tough industry to work in. And you have to love it. You have to love it. And you have to be really passionate about it because you won't survive in it. So, you know, this is just an, an, an increase in the number of people that go into it for the wrong reasons. So. Today on Dirty Linen is a little bit of a special day. It is episode 200. Uh, insert fanfare here, Rob. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, for this very special episode, I have a couple of things to report. One is that for the first time, I'm using a proper microphone stand not a cardboard box, um, which I can only make work if I slightly hunch in my chair. So I'm sitting up properly with a pro microphone stand and we have got, I thought who better to come on for episode 200 than the absolute legend that came on for episode one, um, when neither of us really had any idea what we were getting into. (laughs) So uh, welcome to Dirty Linen, episode 200, Ella Wolf-Tasker from Lake House in Dalesford in Victoria. Hello, Danny, and I have my telephone on a cardboard tissue box. <laughs> well, there you go. What, by the time we do 200 episodes together, you too will have a fancy stand. Well, excellent, excellent, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm. By the way, congratulations, congratulations. There's been a lot of water under the bridge. I've listened to just, I think, just about every one of your podcasts and the variety and the energy that comes through each and every one and some sadness and a lot of laughter it's just a thrilling ride it's just wonderful so congratulations oh thank you so much and thank you so much for listening um that's really nice to learn um when we spoke those those months ago things were in a pretty different state it was pretty it's pretty difficult and dark times although you know we always try to look for the the silver linings and the glimmers of hope. Um, how are things going for you at Lake House at the moment? Well, you know, I actually looked back in my diary and the phone to see when we spoke and it was June, June 2020. So, um, and we had just received news that, you know, we were expecting to open, can't remember how long, but in, anyway, we ended up not opening until November. So it was still quite a long way further along that we had our proper opening. So I'll tell you about what's happened since November, um, November 2020. And, you know, the forecasted, the big big thing for us, we're a regional property, and the big thing for us is, you know, the metropolis is is 6 million people down the road. So while those 6 million people were locked down, um, we didn't have very much business at all. There was a little bit of regional business, but not very much. And everyone was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. But let me tell you that once those floodgates opened, um, it's been enormous. And I think everybody in every region, probably around Australia, will tell you that, that once the metropolis is opened, but it was Melbourne that was closed down for the longest time. Um, the floodgates open and a whole lot of people are travelling around the regions, which is wonderful. We were closed down completely for 177 days last year. Um, 
That's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and then there were all the funny kind of 10, 10 people. You can have 10 people, you can have 20 people. And the funny thing is that when we were first off at 10 people, I kind of was very snooty and very smug and said, oh, that's ridiculous, we'll never take 10. And then by the time November came, or end of October came around and we got off at 10, I said, we'll take it, we'll take anything. <laughs> so, you know, uh, life, life changes your perspective very quickly. Um, it's been huge. It's been huge. It's been gratifying. It's been lots of people at the beginning. I mean, everyone was in tears. I mean, everyone was so happy to be going back doing, well, basically having a job and doing what they love doing in most cases, but also people being able to get out and celebrate and enjoy life and meet up with each other. And that hasn't really, you know, there's still a real kind of sense of, not novelty, but thank goodness we're here and thank goodness we're alive and thank goodness you're here and, you know, thank goodness for everything. I, you know, it, it's not – people are not blasé about it yet um, and I'm hoping that that stays there, uh, that sense of, you know, isn't this, isn't this wonderful? And isn't this wonderful that we can all get together and eat and enjoy ourselves and celebrate and meet up with family and friends and, you know, we see that every day. Yeah, I don't think the novelty of that has worn off and nor should it ever. I hope that people can retain that, that real awareness of the, the preciousness of, of gathering in restaurants and enjoying beautiful food that's, you know, being cooked by someone else with skill and, you know, a sense of provenance, which of course is definitely what happens at Lake House. Um, Alo, you know, also when we spoke last year, you were in, you know, undergoing treatment for cancer. How is your health at the moment? <laughs> I think I told you everything took a back seat uh, in the middle of 2020 because I just couldn't manage to keep going into hospitals and having these infusions, you know, the, the, the chemo and all of that. So I kind of stopped everything for a while. And look, it's been okay. Um, I basically had to rebuild my own system. I had to get healthy again in order to be able to, and when I say healthy, build up my immune system again, which totally gets depleted when you're having chemo. Uh, I had to be sound from that point of view so that I could actually help run the business and interact with the team and interact with the local community, and which wouldn't have been possible if I had have stayed on chemo. You know, seven months on chemo trashes you, really trashes mm. you. Um, it's no secret. So, look, and I've, you know, I've resorted to all kinds of other things as well. You know, I've, I've gone into a lot of, um, I've learned a lot, learned a lot about myself, my health, what I need to do, um, what I realise is probably impossible to do in this industry, and that is, you know, uh, spend a lot of time gazing at your navel and thinking about yourself. Um, <laughs> I guess at the end of the day, what can I say? The people who matter in my treatment tell me that it's probably too early to celebrate because I keep saying, well, look, I'm okay, I'm okay, and they, they're cautious um, and they say, look, it might be time to, we might be able to break open some champagne at the end of the year. So I'm hanging on to that. I'm hanging on to the positive stuff. So. Good. Well, I'll hang on to it as well. Good. It sounds, it sounds very promising and that, that's fantastic. But I also want to say that I know, I know, deep in my heart, I know that I was buoyed, absolutely buoyed by the good wishes and white light of just 
so many people, so many people, you know, who I know wished me the best and supported me mentally from all over the place. And, um, you know, sometimes they'd send a card or flowers or something or just a little text or something. But I know a lot of people did wish me well. And and I just want to thank everyone who was involved in that because it was so special. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's great to know that you were buoyed by the, yeah, enormous outpouring of concern and good wishes. And um, I'm here. <laughs> yes, so good. 3,000%. Uh, great. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you say that you put some of your treatment um, to the side for a moment because that's what we're learning, um, you know, as there's still that big wash up from lockdown that a lot of people put their treatment plans um, to one side. And, you know, that now we see a lot of people coming with, you know, I guess additional health concerns because they'd let go of some of the things that they um, perhaps, you know, their medical team had planned that for them. Um, ambulances are <clears throat> overrun, hospitals are too busy. So, Ella, I can't believe that you are one of those naughty people. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, honestly, it was just, uh, it, it was very hard because, it, you know, with a compromised immune system, you just can't get around. And I've got a, you know, I've got family, I've got business and going into hospitals, which was sort of, you know, a bit sus too at the time because there were sort of, you know, um, cases being found in various hospitals. You know, it, it was something, it was a difficult decision, but I just, and, and you know, the, the people that were looking after me said, look, you know, give it a go. And, you know, the, the result the result is you're now going to have a 50-50 chance <laughs> instead of, you know, perhaps a 60-40 chance. Um, so, you know, it was a decision I had to make. I mean, Wow, that is really, that that just gave me a chill. Um, oh, well, don't. I'm all right. <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. But And, and you know, I, to any, everyone who's listening, you know, when I say those naughty people, I really don't mean to be flippant because I know that people were, you know, making decisions from a place of great stress and it was, we were just all in the thick of it and everyone just had to get through it in whatever way they could. So I certainly don't mean to diminish any hard decisions that people made through that period and, and, you know, still have to make. Um, so, uh, so reopening Lake House after all those long months of closure and uncertainty uh, must have been an enormous challenge, especially as we all know we were already short on skills and staff and those, um, yeah, that situation has definitely not improved. How has it been reopening Lake House? What have the challenges been from the back end point of view? Look, it was an enormous challenge. Um, we were, I won't say fortunate because, you know, it was an expensive business, but we we will say we fortunately managed to keep most of our team. And I know um, which enabled us. I mean, we opened in the long weekend in November, but I know of lots of businesses that didn't open until much, much later in November and some of them in December because they had to uh, pull a team together. So um, it paid off sort of housing people and feeding people and looking after people um, in the end. And also, you know, we had people who already understood our business. Um, but I think no one probably expected the flood um, that eventuated. I mean, our business has picked up enormously midweek, um, but in, but <laughs> as a result, we need a larger team. And so we do have to close some services. We don't take as many events um, as we used to. Um, so there are sort of quid pro quos with, with the situation. 
Um, yes, we have been railing against the lack of workforce um, for the hospitality industry for some time, but you know, this is another thing that has, this is another fracture that has been exposed by um, the, the pent-up demand that is now for travelling in Australia. I mean, this is to be expected because people can't travel overseas. I mean, there was $64 billion, $64 billion going out of the country every year with Australians travelling overseas and that money... So people had that money to travel, they wanted to travel, they wanted to have experiences and now a lot of that money is being used to push up the price of housing because people are buying houses um, or, they're, or they're repairing and renovating houses so you can't get a contractor for love nor money if you want to get something painted or tiled. Um, and fortunately also they're going out and staying in places and eating out and so forth. And it's an interesting thing because we have certainly all of our return guests and our very loyal guests, but there's a whole new market that kind of is probably in the last 10 years. You know, we develop a bit of a cringe in Australia. You know, we tend to sort of expect that things overseas are going to be better. I've lived through several cycles of that um, in, in my own career in hospitality where I've seen, you know, Australians preferring to let's go to Italy um, you know, there won't be anything as good here, that kind of thing. And I think that people have missed out on seeing the development of all kinds of interesting food things that have developed in the last, especially sort of food, food provi provision of food in the regions in the last 10 years. I mean, the sort of place, the sort of things used to go to Italy and France for now exist in Australia, small villages, little bakeries, terrific little farmers markets, wonderful local produce, great wine, you go up a country lane. So people hadn't realised that what's developed in their own backyard and they're rediscovering it now, you know. Ella, have you found that the people that are coming to you are perhaps less price sensitive than they were before? You know, are people there to spend? Absolutely, people are there to spend. And I think maybe that's been a really good thing for the hospitality industry. Look, most of the people in the hospitality industry tell me they've raised their prices because I think that that fragility that we all sensed that we talked about last time, you know, there was it had become exposed um, about the lack of sustain economic sustainability if people were really complying, uh, the lack of sustainability in business. And I think that people now, in order to reopen, have understood that they, well, first of all, they've got to try and recoup all the losses of last year or some of the losses of last year, but also that they have to... They, they have to, there has to be a value put on. I mean, if we all want people to be paid well and we want the food to come from somewhere we know um, rather than sort of corners being cut everywhere, we are going to have to pay for it. And uh, I think there has been an increase in the tolerance level because maybe people have understood that and they've also missed the industry enormously and it's kind of like a reward to, you know, the longevity of hospitality in Australia. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned that you kept your staff, which is extraordinary because so many people weren't able to um, for whatever reason. And, I mean, but that was obviously a really expensive project. You had staff living in your in your own accommodation. Um, you were, you know, feeding them from the farm. You were, you know, looking, really looking after them. And, um, and that's amazing because you're able to reopen. And as you say, you've got people that know the business. But I... I imagine it also means you have more losses to recoup like is it is it how is that sort of clawing back tracking back going um 
<laughs> I'm, I don't think I... If I told you the figures, you'd be horrified, actually. Um, the figures are not pretty. Um, we will claw back, and, I mean, the business is very sound now. Uh, the business is sound in terms of demand. Um, we just have to keep a really um, tight look at it. I mean, when, when I say, you know, we supported people, there were 30, probably 30-odd people who were not getting any kind of government support out of the 105, I think. So we did need to, you know, spend a bit more time looking after them. And also, whenever there was anything possible that we could give them in terms of ours, they were the people that were first chosen first. But Keeping a team suspended rather than making them redundant means that their annual leave entitlements increase. It, it continue. So they were all still getting all of their benefits, and that was costly. That was very costly. Uh, look, but I think, you know, I wouldn't change it in a heartbeat because the core people that we still have, I mean, we have had some people leave for various reasons, you know, it's been a while now. Um, some people did give up and go into state because they just couldn't wait for anything to reopen here. And, and you know, I don't blame them for that. Um, but certainly our core team, you know, probably three quarters of our team remains the same. And being able to pivot very quickly, there's that word, pivot very quickly and reopen yeah. made a big difference to us. We will claw back. We've just got to be careful, uh, and my, and no one knows how long this will last, and what's going to happen with um, overseas travel. What I'm loving, though, what I'm really loving, is the response of people who are discovering us. S seriously, I mean, in the last ten years, I guess the the um, maybe the maybe the maybe the people in their late twenties are now in their late thirties, and uh, maybe you know. Maybe, you know, they, their parents may have talked about Lake House, but Lake House has changed enormously and they've come up and there's a terrific horizon pool and people mixing Negronis on a deck um, overlooking the lake or down by the fire pit in the chilly weather and it's all, you know, pretty cool. And so there's this whole raft of new people who are discovering this as well who clearly have probably and they're discovering lots of things in the region and other regions and they're probably things that they've gone to look for overseas um and assume that you know australia couldn't couldn't produce um you know similar things in 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 this country and, and sometimes better things i think that you know there's a whole new there's a whole new market that, that uh, is responding to us as well and um that's going to be good for you know long-term business you have to take a long-term view you can't go well you know we lost all this money last year and oh woe is me and it's going to take us you know nine months to recoup and i mean you you have to take a long-term look at all of this it's I, i've got to say it is tough with with the workforce at the moment that is probably worse than it's ever been. It's always been a problem. Um, and we, you know, the hospitality industry is made up of a whole lot of different people who work in it for various reasons. The, the echelon that we tend to tap into are the people who are in it for the long-term career. They're career professionals. If they're in the kitchen, they want to be able to show off their craft if they're on the floor it's a career it's not a part-time job while they're studying to be a social worker or a lawyer you know it's a full-time career and hospo people you know there's a huge range there's people who are musicians and artists and do it as a part-time job you know being a barista or you know running some wine or or coffees or something and then at the other end there's the people for whom it's a career well the career people have basically been closed off there's no 
hardly any training that happens in Australia at that level. I mean, if we get Cert two or Cert three or Cert four people graduating in Australia, we have to then really work hard and train them in house to bring them up to that level. But the career professionals that used to come over. In some cases, they it was a skills transfer and they wanted permanent residency and we would support them through multiple visas and whatever they needed. But also young under 30 working holiday visa people who were in the hospitality industry in Europe or in Asia and wanted to come and spend a year or two working in Australia in the hospitality industry, but they were career professionals. So that's all dried up completely. And so... Yes, I mean you do need to you do need to take a long view. In you know your business has been there for thirty five years, and you know um, and decades to come, I'm sure. So you're taking the long view makes sense. But I mean, what do you think? What kinds of things would you be looking to change apart from allowing internationals back in whenever you know that's feasible? Um, what kinds of things could change to improve that um, that? Uh, those staff shortages? Well, it's not just should we be letting people in from overseas now considering the COVID situation, it's just the immigration laws are just, they, they are, diff- <laughs> they're like most other laws, you know, they're difficult. Um, they, like a lot of laws, they've, they've been created to band-aid some particular thing, um, but they all have huge unintended consequences. Um, And it's a really complicated landscape. I mean, the unintended consequences of the current uh, immigration laws, I can just give you a couple, and they're not not good ones, um, is that, you know, if if the particular profession is on the the requirements list, you know, they publish these lists of required trades and and occupations, and there's one that's a short term and there's one that's a long term, and they they do get looked at every now and then, but probably not as often as, as they could. So, you know, you have a look at what we've got in Australia now. We've got a lot of students who are stuck here, Um, who have come over to study something in hospitality in Australia. And a lot of them, when they finish their course, they're they're on a student visa, then they go on a graduate visa, which allows them two years more work here. And then if they get a sponsorship from an employer, um, they, they may get onto a particular visa and then a path to permanency if they're lucky. If you have a look at a lot of those people are now stuck here, um, they can't go back home. Um, they are, a lot of them keep, unfortunately, keep being sold additional, um, additional, additional student things to do, like things to study, which are of no, they, there's no rhyme nor reason for them to take them up. Um, because it's a way of staying in the country. I mean, we've got a young man that we've just, um, that's come onto our books now, who was sold a, an additional course. He thought it was the only way he could stay in the country. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, he was told the only way he could stay in the country was to take on an additional um, student course so that he could maintain his student visa. The costs for that were $21,000. This was information that was given to him by an immigration specialist. Um, I'm not saying that there may be commissions being paid but or whatever, but it's, it's, it was bad advice. Um, you know, they, I don't know whether it was just bad advice or it was just a lack of interest. Oh, it's just another person and we need to help them stay in Australia and this is going to be the quickest way. We'll sign him up for some course that really 
it doesn't need to be doing, but you know, it's it's quick and it'll eventually cost him twenty one thousand, and there's probably a commission going both ways. I mean, all those sort of things are happening at the rate of knots now, and it's a mess. It's the immigration situation at the moment is a mess. It needs to be looked at. This is the opportunity. While the borders are closed, this is an opportunity to actually have a look at big picture stuff, not just the hospitality industry, everything, the health industry, the building industry, whatever. There's needs everywhere. And and this is a good opportunity. While there is no influx and whatever, we could have a look at the whole thing and, and talk about what's needed. I mean, the hospitality industry is still stuck with this training levy that we pay so that if we take people on a particular visa we actually pay a training levy which goes nowhere there is no training being done so it's 7200 if you sponsor someone on a 482 look you don't need to know what these what these visas are a 186 costs you five thousand dollars and in most cases you need to do both so it's a 12200 kind of cost as a training levy before any visa gets paid or anything yeah it's pretty crazy. And I guess the the thinking behind the training levy or I suppose the optics is that as you're saying that you need someone who has these skills um, from overseas, the idea is that the training levy goes to, to reduce the need for that demand in the future by training someone in those same skills in Australia. But then if that doesn't happen, then it's actually just a penalty. And um, what's, what is the point? Well, that's what's happened. I think this was brought in, I think it was brought in four years ago and there's been no no additional, tra- I mean, we do internal training. Yeah, but you don't get your own levy. No, we don't get our own levy, but also we sometimes bring in third-party people to train. So we, we're doing some middle management training at the moment in leadership and all kinds of stuff, mostly because the HR... Uh, the HR landscape is so difficult at the moment that they're having to deal with all kinds of things that they haven't had to deal before. So we're actually bringing in an external contractor at the rate of $25,000 to train nine people. Now, it would be really good if we got our levy back as a result, but, you know, it's not going to happen. And the reason the levies were brought in, yes, absolutely, it was um, in order to improve the training that happened in Australia, but it's there's a whole lot of weird colleges, I'm sorry to say this, doing weird things for people that probably don't want them. And the other thing is that if you were um, looking to come to Australia and you, you know, a lot of these people now who are students who have done Cert 3 and Cert 4, you look at their background back in the home country and they were engineers, IT specialists. They weren't cooks. They weren't cooks. But cooks were on the short list. And you could get into a course, you could get into a course and get a student visa, which might, if you're lucky, eventually end up in a permanent residence. It's all of these unintended consequences and it's a big mess. And I'm sure it's the same in other in other um, industries as well, not just in hospitality, but it, it needs a good clean-up. And I just wish... You know, I used to say we need a minister for food. <laughs> we need a bipartisan minister for food. Well, we probably need a bipartisan minister for hospitality. It's interesting because it's tourism, but it probably should be tourism and hospitality because there are there are differences. But you know, I'm, I don't know what the answers are. I think you told I think you told me last time I should have the national cabinet meet at, at Lake House, but I don't think. <laughs> That's right. That would be great. Um, 
Negronis by the pool and then sought out immigration, uh, sought out the education industry. I think, you know, even the fact that, you know, higher education and selling those courses to internationals is called an education industry is, you know, it's part of the problem. Like it's, it just, I think it allows for money to sort of wash around within it without actually, um, yeah, making sure that all this ship shape and people are coming out at the other end with, um, with, you know, skills that are useful to them and to, um, and to, yeah, and to our society and, and to, and to their home countries. And, and to make, to make sure that people go into our industry with their eyes wide open, you know, that do you really want to be a cook? Do you really want to be a chef? And what does that really mean? I mean, if they're doing it only because it's going to give them some kind of visa, then that's bad enough. But we already had a profession where people used to go into it, you know, without, with their eyes, you know, not wide open. And, you know, it is a tough industry. It's a tough industry to work in. And you have to love it. You have to love it. And you have to be really passionate about it because you won't survive in it. So, you know, this is just an, an, an increase in the number of people that go into it for the wrong reasons. So. Mm. I mean, it's, it's great to hear um, that you're doing that training. And I know that, you know, Lake House always does a lot of training and skilling up, but a lot of businesses don't. Um, sometimes that's because they just, uh, they feel under-resourced. They feel like they don't have the time. Um, and of course, that does lead to staff moving around more because people feel like they're not developing, you know, rather than, you know, go deeper into something, they try something else. Um, what do you think people, what, what do you think we lose when that happens in terms of a dining culture? When people leave the industry or people move around in the industry? Just when people don't learn the skills that they learn by staying somewhere, by being trained properly. Well, you know, the c- consistency in a business and in hospitality in a restaurant is probably the biggest challenge. And if you have a revolving door of staff, if you've got people coming in and out all the time, it's almost impossible to develop procedures that are foolproof. I mean, you can't, if, you, if you're putting on a, a play in the theatre and you had people who are unrehearsed coming in and playing the, the roles that are necessary after curtain up, you'd have a disaster on your hands. So, you know, you, it, it takes a while for, look, if you're a hospitality professional, there are some things that are always the same, but every business works differently. And to understand the business and understand the procedures within a business takes time. And there needs to be a culture of pushing. There needs to be a culture of we want to get better, we want to get better, we want to get better. And you, you're not going to get that with temporary staff. You, you're going to get that with people who have a vested interest in, in being with you, in being, you know, I call our, our, our lot the tribe, the Lake House tribe, and we always talk about how it takes a village to produce a lot of the experiences that we produce it's not just i'm cooking food it's it's producing a whole experience for people and creating i know it sounds naff but i mean it's it's creating joy it's creating joy and a sense of celebration for people on every occasion and that takes that takes a desire and an ethos and a philosophy i mean we call it constructive discontent what can we do better what can we do better? Mm, I love that. Well, it's been the kind of, it was a bit hard last year. <laughs> <laughs> sure. A bit too much of the discontent. Yeah, we were pretty discontent with everything. We weren't being constructive about it. But 
uh, you know, we can't lose it. We can't lose it because it's about raising the bar. And I've got to say at the moment it's trying, it's testing because there is movement of staff. Um, people are, uh, you know, having shortages and trying to win people over. I mean, there's been, you know, there's, there's people who have held on and not opened businesses because there aren't enough staff. And, you know, they're talking about needing 400 people in order to open up. Well, that's every time something like that ha happens, it just sucks, sucks the stuff out of everything else that exists. So, and at the same time, there's not uh, a raft of people being trained. So the push and pull is going to be difficult and survival is going to be of the fittest. <laughs> survival is going to be of the fittest. I would hate to say most ruthless, most ruthless I hope not. Um, but also people who are just not prepared to give up. And, you know, that was the other thing that we talked about, uh, you know, during COVID about the number of people that kind of just went, you know, it's too hard, not going to do this anymore. And there were a lot of people, I think. And I'm, I'm hoping that this phase, because, you know, I mean, I watched uh, local news a few nights ago and just about every little bistro and cafe and, you know, the people were on television saying, look, we're, we're, we're closing three services a week because we can't find staff, you know. Um, so I hope that doesn't create more of a demise. I hope it doesn't create a growth in the bigger places that can afford to maybe splash a lot more money around uh, because they're backed by, you know, not restaurateurs and chefs but developers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I say that... You know, it's it's just it's just factual. You know, there's there's going to be a big, um, you know, that people are going to compete for existing staff. There's no question. I mean, it's going to be natural for people to compete. So um, it's going to be a bit of a tough time, a bit of a rough and rocky ride um, to get through this until something is sorted out with bringing more workers in. And I, I was saying to you, I mean, apart from COVID. Um, I grew up as a, a daughter of uh, post-war migrant parents, and both my parents came over on assisted passage to Australia at a time when, post-Second World War, when Australia really, really needed workers. So I grew up, you know, two blue-collar workers who went off and worked untamed jobs <laughs> to get ahead, but Australia welcomed them. Uh, and I think we're going to be in a situation where uh, we, we're going to need a lot of workers and I don't know how that's going to be sorted out but we do need to sort it out um, or otherwise we will have a different hospitality industry we will have a bit of you know big big very big players in the in the industry rather than chef patrons and the other thing is you know you get a proliferation of food malls uh, if you know what I mean um, because well, you just get a much blander landscape where there aren't yeah, that's, as a diner, I, um, I'm i frightened of that because I don't want a slew of restaurants that are buying in their desserts and bringing in, you know, pre-portioned everything. Um, I want people that are, yeah, in their businesses being creative and expressing something that is that only they can express. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. It's that personal touch that makes it different from, you know, someone else's place that they've been to, you know, recently and, and what makes this place special. I and mean, we talk to our guests a lot about that, you know. We, we try to sort of uh, distill what it is that they like about us and, you know, use that as our kind of benchmark so that we're doing more of that rather than less of that. And it's exactly that. It's, 
it's a point of difference. It's kind of not the same, same old, same old. But it is going to be difficult because of the lack of workforce. There's no question about that. Look, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, I don't want to be pessimistic about all this because it was hard with COVID. Now it's hard even though business is good. But um, we are going to have to solve this worker situation. Uh, because there's a demand. I mean, the interesting thing is that with this reset is that, you know, it's not just hospitality. People are enjoying travelling in Australia, some of them for the first time. Apart from when they travelled around as a kid with their parents, they're suddenly enjoying Australian hospitality out in the regions and thinking, you know, this is pretty damn good, you know. Gee, isn't it, isn't it a lovely sense of discovery? But we've done that with our supply chains as well. We've suddenly realised how dependent we were on, on uh, global supply chains for all kinds of things. And we're starting to manufacture, because we've had to manufacture, produce, grow things, I love it with food. I love the fact that, you know, globalisation for me is like, I hope there's not people investing futures in food listening, but, you know, globalisation for me of food has been anathema. I mean, it's just the worst thing that could have happened to us, you know, because we have no control over where it comes from, what's been done to it, what the regs are over there, all of that kind of stuff. So now all of a sudden, you know, people going much more looking for local markets, looking for local, you know, that uh, the the ads that are running that, you know, make sure it's Australian. Everyone's buying into it. I mean, I noticed Arnott's Biscuits said the other day, our biggest difference is we are made in Australia still, you know. There are people being employed. It's an Australian product. This is something that we kind of shirked for a long time. I oh, know it can't be as good and, you know, and also this might be a bit cheaper because it's not made in Australia. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, the building industry almost closed down when COVID happened because we we were getting our glass. I won't say from which country, but we are getting glass, glass for windows from a very large country that we've got some problems with at the moment. But why? I mean, Australia has the biggest reserves of sand of anyone in the world of silica, and we were, we were buying in glass, you know. So I think there's been a return to a pride in local, in manufacturing, in food, in especially in food. I mean, the farmers, the small artisanal farmers around our area are booming because more people are caring about their food and wanting to know where that comes from. And that's it. Can I do a segue? Have I done 600 segues for you already? <laughs> What's one more? One more, <laughs> do well, it. one more segue is, you know, the whole issue of health, which I've had to deal with. And, you know, we all, last year, you know, it was all lockdowns and social distancing and sanitisation and masks, etc. And I'm waiting for the health messages that come from all the departments of health right around Australia that are about nutrition. You know, where are those messages? Because we're still, we still have these massive messaging on television about the food that's not good for you, food that is definitely not good for you. And we don't know where it comes from. We don't know its origins. We know that it's very cheap. And, you know, I'm talking about fast food, you know, and what's in it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, in terms of taking responsibility for your own health and your own immunity, of your own immunity, good nutrition is absolutely critical and that means provenance of the food and knowing what's been done to it. You know, that's always been an important thing for me, but now it's gratifying to see it increasing, but it should be at a government level too. Well, I think we can sort of, you know, 
join the circle up with soil and, you know, when we're talking about soil health and food health and provenance and human body health, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a circle that more people are sort of joining and I think it's going to, it'll only t- get more momentum. Um, I hope so. Alla, as well as being really happy about 200 episodes and speaking to you and about my fancy new microphone stand, I'm also really happy that my house smells like quinces today um, and I'm just loving autumn produce. What are you loving uh, that's growing at the moment? Well, you know, we had the biggest, I think I inhaled tomatoes, like completely inhaled tomatoes for months and months and months. So they've, they've just, we had every possible variety uh, that we grew this year and they were just absolutely delicious. We've still got some hanging in the hoop houses. Um, we've got quinces coming through. We've got Jerusalem artichokes coming through. We've we've harvested all the eggplant and the peppers and chilies and all of that, all of that, which is the frost tender stuff. That's all been harvested and that's coming through in in lots of um, menu items. Pumpkins, of course, we've had to move those when the first frost came. We've got beautiful Dutch cream potatoes. We've got a beautiful blue purple potato called blue sapphire Um, we're doing a beautiful talking about pumpkins we've got these tiny little jack pumpkins and we're doing a a souffle inside the pumpkin um, which is goat's cheese and goat's cheese and goat's cheese and pumpkin well you know since we've had the farm we do a lot of these dishes that we call the art of the vegetable and they are about the vegetable but people just love them you know it's it's irrelevant whether you're vegetarian or not vegetarian Um, and I refuse to use that title of plant-based food because in a lot of cases here's in a little segue uh, in a lot of cases that's actually talking about processed food and what I'm talking about is food where you know you know what you're, what you're getting there's a great swordfish dish swordfish is obviously sea rather than you know we're inland but it comes from Ulladulla beautiful fish and we've got a syrupy gazpacho consomme with it with jalapeno peppers which is just Really, really beautiful, light, delicious first course. Oh, we've got orchard pears with a white chocolate gateau and uh, olive oil sorbet that has some chamomile through it. I'm putting a lot of our a lot of our kind of medicinal herbs into things because I kind of can. <laughs> it's kind of the secret agenda. <laughs> eat, eat, eat this dessert and feel sort of more relaxed. I'd bloody rather you putting herbs in my dessert than Scott Morrison laying hands on me and praying. <laughs> oh, please, yeah, um, health me up. That sounds great. Um, Ella, I would just lastly like to ask you whether you think this autumn are the leaves somehow brighter and richer in colour than usual or is it that we have come out the other side of 2020? Because to me, the autumn leaves look really incredibly rich and sparkly. Well, isn't that funny because I was just doing the new introduction to the menu and I was trying to work out how to frame that because I thought maybe we've just had more sunny days and they're looking sharper and brighter, but there's no question. They're brilliant. They're absolutely, the aces, the, the the maples, the bright red maples and the yellows that are out at the moment in the Manchurian pears are just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Maybe it's a little, <laughs> me and my universe, <laughs> the universe talks to me a lot and I talk to the universe. Maybe it's the universe sending us a little signal that all will be well and we just need to 
continue to motor through it and just do the best we can and the best for each other. I reckon you're right. I feel like there's definitely, uh, yeah, a little bit of extra sparkle for us there. Um, Alo, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much for being a return guest on Dirty Linen. Couldn't have started it without you. And I'm so happy to have you here for this next step along the journey. Number 200. Woohoo. That's quite a record. Thank you, Danny, for thinking of me. Always. Thanks. You take care. Bye. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.